Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Voice of Adoptees, which brings together diverse and unique voices from around the world to share their stories. If you liked today's episode, remember to give us a like, subscribe, and leave a review. Here's your host, David Shunk. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Voice of Adoptee. Today, we have a special guest joining us, Taylor. Thank you so much for your time and consideration coming on to our show today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to join this podcast. Thank you so much. So for our listeners who don't know you, tell us a bit about yourself. Where do you live and what do you do? Yeah, so my name is Taylor. I'm a Chinese adoptee. I was adopted from China when I was nine months old, and I was adopted into a family that already had a biological daughter. And so I grew up basically having a twin. She's only seven months younger than me. But I currently live in Orlando, Florida, and I do adoption advocacy slash education on all my social platforms. I'm a personal assistant to an influencer, so that's my full-time job. That's quite a bit. How do you handle the workload? As best as I can. It, it gets a little difficult, but it's just one of my passions, and so I make time for it. That's awesome. How and when did you get into advocating for adoption? So I first got into advocating for adoption back in, I want to say, 2013, 2014. And I started off with a blog because one of my high school teachers encouraged me to start writing because he noticed that was something I was passionate about. And so I sat down and I tried to think, what should I write about? There's so many blogs out there. How can I stand out? And I decided to go a little bit more personal and start writing about my adoption. And I quickly realized that there weren't a lot of adoptees doing that. There weren't a lot of adoptees at the time that felt comfortable sharing their story and sharing their side. I started doing more research. I realized that you only really hear from adoption agencies and adoptive parents, but there isn't much from birth parents and adoptees. And so as I started writing, my blog started gaining popularity. And at one point I was reaching 53 countries of my voice. And I realized how important it was to share adoptive voices. And I kind of migrated onto Instagram and then when COVID hit, I started doing TikTok and I at first did like really cringy duets of like dance videos and stuff like that. And then I did one adoption related video and it blew up. And before I knew it, I started doing more and more advocacy. So I don't really write anymore. My blog is pretty much dead, but I do short form videos instead. And that's something that I've become immensely passionate about. And it's helped me con be connected with so many other adoptees over the world. And as I always say in all my videos, every adoptee is different and all of our stories are different. So just because I have a platform, that doesn't mean that someone else can't have a platform because everyone's voices deserve to be heard. I couldn't agree more. That's amazing. And what you're doing is incredible. And you're just another adoptee, just like anyone else is adopted, is just trying to be heard. I think that says a lot about your character, and that's great. What challenges, if any, have you faced about advocating for adoption? I want to say the biggest challenge that I've faced ever since starting to share my story and being more open is judgment of other people. You know, as adoptees, I think we all face how do I reword this? <laughs> yeah, the biggest the the biggest challenge. Yeah, thank you. No problem. The biggest challenge I face is people online, people hiding behind their screens and saying some really awful, mean things to me and about adoptees, saying that I'm ungrateful, that my parents shouldn't have adopted me because I wanted to look for my birth parents, that all these worst case scenario things like, oh, well, 
your mom should have aborted you then if you're going to be this ungrateful. And it's just so uncalled for. That's something that I see on every adoptee's page. Everyone always wants to get mad at us because adoptees are supposed to be this perfect, grateful person that doesn't say anything negative. And when we do, people are like, no, you're wrong. It's almost like they have already made up their mind of who we are without us even opening our mouth to speak. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It's so frustrating. Yeah, it is. And besides advocating, I believe that one of the ways we are trying our best is just sharing our story, like you mentioned. And we just got to keep doing that. I tell everyone, I think adoption in general is just not fully understood by society. And I think it's up to people like you and myself and others to go online, talk about it, educate people and, you know, do what we're doing. And sometimes time will tell, but I'm sure we'll get there. So you already kind of mentioned about your blog, all your social platforms. You mentioned on TikTok, you did one video that blew up. What was that video? My first video that blew up, it was a video of me reminiscing on the time that my dad brought me home from China. And he arrives at the airport and we have all my friends and family waiting there, waiting for me. And for me, that was a very special moment. However, I do recognize that a lot of adoptees do not share that same feeling. And that can be a negative moment for some adoptees. But, you know, I always try to say on my page that you can have, quote unquote, positive. I don't actually describe adoptions as words, but you can have certain experiences and still have negative things happen. And even though I had this amazing homecoming story, I still have the trauma. I still struggle with those other feelings and that doesn't erase it. It's not like, oh, well, that's all good. But yeah, that was my first viral video. And I got so many questions about what our family's adoption story was and just to share more insight on what that was like. Yeah, that's incredible. What age were you adopted at? Yeah, I was adopted when I was eight months turning nine months. So very young. Yeah. And when would you say you started all this advocacy work for adoption? Was it when you got older? I mean, kind of tell us how you got into the beginning, early stages, because I know, you know, everyone's different, of course, but we all start to ask questions eventually. So when did that kind of start happening for you? Yes, I really started questioning my adoption, probably around elementary school. Growing up, my family was very open about my adoption. It was something that we celebrated. It wasn't something that was hidden from the family. Even though we celebrated it, that didn't make me any different from my cousins or my sister. I was just something unique about me. And it really wasn't until I got older that other children made me start questioning my identity and made me start questioning if I really belonged and why I looked different and why didn't my real parents want me. And I started struggling with those feelings. And then that only grew until I reached high school and I had a lot of anger with that. I had a lot of anger of like, well, why did my birth parents give me up? What was it about me specifically that they didn't want me? And it felt very personal. And I was so mad at the Chinese government for even implementing a rule that made my parents choose to make that decision. So really, it was at that time that my teacher encouraged me to start writing those feelings down and sharing. I definitely think that I have grown as a adoptee creator because starting out, come in and, and what some people coin as the term is you're in the fog. You don't understand all aspects. You're not ready to. And so as I've done my advocacy, I've grown and there's still so much more about adoption that I need to learn from. And I only know my personal experience as a international adoptee from China who was adopted because of the one child policy. And that's the only experience I know. And even though I have my platform, I'm still trying to learn from other adoptee creators and better myself 
and learn how to become a better advocate for more adoptees and not just me specifically or Chinese adoptees specifically. You mentioned the one-child policy about how unfair it is to children, and I agree. It definitely is something that at the time when it came out, took the world by surprise. Have you tried advocating for the one-child policy in terms of reaching out to the government, writing letters, or do you tend to stay away from that and stick with your story? Don't worry, I have cats, so I understand they can be very persistent, very cute, but little annoying after a while. A little bit. For me personally, I have not done any of that. The one-child policy has since ended. So I was involved in an organization years ago when it was a thing called All Girls Allowed, and they really advocated. And she went to Congress and talked to them about the implications of what the one-child policy was and how that was a violation of human rights. And it was amazing. And so I was involved in that at the time. Now my goal is to educate people on what the one-child policy truly means and what the lasting effects are. Because there are millions and millions of Chinese adoptees who have all been impacted because of this one policy. And we are, quote-unquote, the lucky ones, the ones that unfortunately didn't make it. And again, I, I use that term very, very lightly because I don't believe in using those terms with adoption. You know, when people say, oh, you're so lucky, I hate those terms. So I say that very lightly and I don't actually mean that, but just in a general sense. And so I tried to explain because so many people grew up kind of knowing about the one child policy, but not truly understanding what it meant and all the legalities and all the, well, yes, but X, Y, and Z. And so that's more of my aim uh, rather than the more political side, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's good that you're educating those on the one-child policy because you're right. A lot of people heard of it, but it's not like, you know, the schools specialize in teaching it to the extent that, you know, you would want to explore it. I've noticed your TikTok has blown up over the years. You must get hundreds of questions about adoption. Is there a common question that you get more than others? That's a good question. Let me think. One of my most asked questions that has to do with the one-child policy is what happens to twins? People are very, very curious about what happens to twins, which for those who don't know, twins were allowed to keep your twins because that was not a planned thing. A lot of people specifically tried to have twins so that they could have more than one child. Not all twins were kept, unfortunately, due to other circumstances. But yes, twins were allowed. So that's one of my most asked questions. I would say another asked question is, why do you want to do a birth parent search? People get very upset with me uh, when I say I'm doing a birth parent search, when I say that I have. Uh, Yeah. So what happened to twins during the one child policy? And why do you want to do a birth parent search are my two most commonly asked questions. Okay. Yeah. No. And I can relate to not the one child policy. Russia doesn't have that. (laughs) But I can relate to the birth family search. I reconnected with my birth family about 10 years ago. Oh, wow. And you're right. People, everyone suddenly wants to voice their opinion, right? Because they think they're experts. Yes. And some of them are like, well, why are you looking for your biological mother? She gave you up. You have a mother here. That's disrespectful. You shouldn't, you know. You're being rude. You're not being grateful. You're, yeah. Exactly. Some adoptive parents are not as supportive to their children searching. Mm -hmm. Some are there to support you along the way. Luckily, my parents were very supportive about it. We took a trip back to Russia together and, you know, did the whole cultural, you know, 
exploration, so to speak. Let's talk about your journey back to China. We saw that you've been back, you visited your orphanage. Let's talk about your journey. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, my dad got an opportunity to move to China. Well, let me go back even farther than that. When I was younger, probably middle school age, my parents started talking about going back to China, specifically for me, but for them too, they they were very interested in the culture and going and it being, you know, an opportunity of the lifetime. At the time, I wasn't ready. And so I actually had a Chinese adoptee friend who we were very close. And we actually started planning this trip to go back to China to serve at a orphanage that dealt with children with disabilities and things like that. And we were going to go volunteer together. And both of us, you know, separate of each other, we both kind of went to our moms and said, we're not ready. We are not ready to go back. We don't feel like it's the right time. And so both trips that we almost went on were canceled because of that. And so it wasn't until later that I started feeling more comfortable with the idea. And that's when my dad had the opportunity to get a job in China. And so he accepted it. And all of a sudden, my parents were moving to China. And that meant I was going to China. And this happened during my freshman year of college. So I was able to go and it was really hard. <laughs> I don't know about you, but going back to my birth country for the first time, there was just so many feelings that the feeling of what if, what if I was kept? What if I grew up here? What if those were my friends and this is what I did? And this is, you know, this, what if this was my life? And then it was a feeling of feeling so out of place and in place at the same time. Like I looked Chinese, I am Chinese. I was born in China, but going back, I was an American Chinese. I didn't know the language. I didn't know the cultural norms. I look different. You know, I have very Western like makeup on. I am a lot bigger than traditional Chinese girls. I'm a lot darker. And it was just this really weird feeling of like dysphoria of like, I don't belong, but I do. But at one point I did. And it was really hard. And it wasn't until my second time back that I actually had a positive experience. That's something I, I kind of talked about. Yeah, you've been back twice. Wow, okay. Yeah, I've, I've been back three times. Oh, three, okay, three times. Let's hear about the positive experience. Yeah, so my second time going back, I think it was just a better experience because the first time my parents had just moved there, we were all trying to figure out what restaurants can we eat at, what's you know safe to eat because unfortunately, it, you get a lot of stomach issues when you travel abroad. Asia is no exception. And so the second time going back, my parents kind of knew like, all right, these are the restaurants we eat at. This is where we buy our groceries. This is where we do this and that. I kind of wish looking back that I waited to do my birth parent search until my second or third visit because we combined my first visit to China with my birth parent search. And that was completely overwhelming to do that all at the same time. Yeah, that sounds like it was. I mean, that's to not only move to a country that you were born in, but also try to find your family on top of that. You must have been in overload times 100. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, I feel bad for my family. I was an emotional wreck. I didn't know how to process anything. You know, it was all those feelings of abandonment and rejection. And they would all just came flooding back when I started doing my birth parent search that I kind of suppressed for years that I didn't realize I had. And then I went and I was like, oh my gosh. This is so much more real than I thought it was. Looking back, I, I wish I waited. No, I I understand that. You know, some people think they're ready. And I thought I was ready when I went over too. But 
I held myself together in Russia pretty well. I didn't really say much until the very end. And then on the last night there, it was just my adopted mom and I, and we were having dinner. And I just said, I'm like, you know, mom, I'm ready to go home now. And she just burst into tears and I started crying. And then I was processing it. I didn't know what to think. The whole thing, looking back on it, was just a magical experience in some ways that's wrapped into an unknown environment with people that look like you all of a sudden and are treating you like you've been in their lives their entire life. And you wrap all that up and yet you are still the one at the end of the day and at the end of the trip that gets to go back to the United States Yes. and leave them. And then you get back and then you're like, wow, <laughs> like I need, I, I'm like, I need to write about this and talk about this. And it took 10 years just to, cause I kept, I'm like, I just don't even know what to say. I mean, this is just so, and I'm still thinking about it. I mean, I'm still in touch with relatives and my biological mother will call me out of the blue once in a while. And I'm just still, I'm still amazed by it. You know, it's unbelievable. Yeah, no, there's literally nothing that could ever prepare you for that experience. You know, the experience alone of going back to your home country, but then the experience of doing your, like, no matter what I say online, everyone's going to have their own experience. It's difficult and it does take a long time to process. This was seven years ago for me and I'm still getting emotional thinking about it because of how hard it was. About when you went back and you went to the orphanage, you mentioned you reconnected with your family or did you? I connected with two families. So when we wanted to do my birth parent search, we had to find someone that spoke that dialect in my hometown because it's a very hard dialect to understand. And so we actually found someone through my parents' church who was from my exact same town, and she volunteered to go with us. And she wrote my story on WeChat, which is their version of social media in China, and it went viral. And because of that, we had news reporters and TV stations reaching out, wanting to cover my search. And then we ultimately decided to only go with a newspaper because we knew if we went to my town with a whole bunch of cameras, no one was going to want to talk to us. That was going to be the kiss of death to my search. So we had two families step forward and say that they thought I was a possible match for them. The first one was a father whose second daughter they had to give up because they couldn't afford the fine. He didn't tell his wife or daughter that he was going to do a DNA test with me. And so we went and got our DNA tested and he was not a match. He was very sweet and very kind. And then we had another family that stepped forward and their story was their third daughter got stolen by the government. Again, they couldn't pay the fine. They hid the pregnancy and the government found out and they kidnapped her from them when she was very young. And I actually did look like the mom when she was younger. We had a lot of similar resemblances and they declined to do any testing with me. And so to this day, I don't know if they were my family or if they weren't. And I think something that is a little harder when you're a international adoptee is that you forget the American diet is very different. And so a lot of adoptees, or at least for Chinese adoptees, when they reconnect with their parents, they do kind of look like them, but they look very different because of their different upbringings almost. So even though I had speech, or like I'll never know for sure unless they wanted to do testing, but I did look relatively similar. So yeah, I have not connected with them yet, but it wasn't until a couple years ago when another documentary came out that makes me think I might have looked in the wrong province to begin with. So I'm, I'm in the process of gearing up to do another birth parent search in a different province this time. Okay. You touch on DNA testing, and it sounds like you're relying pretty heavily on... 
DNA testing. Forgive me because I'm not 100% up to date with the adoption process in China and like what documents you get, what you don't get access to. I only know like Russia and the United States laws, but what kind of information did you get when you were adopted? Like what did your parents have for you available? That's what I'm curious about. So I have like three main documents. I have the document stating I was abandoned and that is kind of like my finding paper stating that I was found when I was two days old at the steps of the orphanage by X, you know, by whoever the orphanage worker was at the time on this date. And then I have the certificate of abandonment just issued by the government saying that, yes, no family stepped forward to claim me. And then I have my adoption documents just stating that Kelly and Bob adopted me, so on and so forth. But for Chinese adoptees, we really don't get that much information And because of the one-child policy, that adds so much more layers because you technically couldn't abandon your child at that time. So parents weren't willing to leave any identifying information when they abandoned their daughters. And then to add to that, because of the one-child policy, the sheer amount of babies in orphanages made it impossible for orphanages to keep any token that families might have left. And any money that was left, it was immediately taken. And so... To add another fun layer, trafficking was a really big issue in China because a lot of people realized, as a lot of adoptees know, you know, adoption means money. (laughs) It's a for-profit industry. And so they realized that babies, the more babies they had in the orphanage, the more money that they could sell them to foreign families that wanted to adopt them. And so abandoned babies were taken off the streets, brought to orphanages, sold, and then you know, sold slash adopted again. And that's how orphanages made their money. And that in in itself is a whole complicated story because by definition trafficking, but at the same time, the baby was no longer left on the side of the road, but they were left in a horrible, you know, it's just like all these complex layers to where you're just like, yeah, if you think too hard about it, you're like, this is so messed up. I don't even know where to begin to start thinking. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So so you had no identifying information. And my question also to you is, did the Chinese government provide any help in terms of like lo- any locating yeah. or anything like that? Or would they not really a big resource? Unfortunately, the government, they're not willing to help at all. That is something that they don't want to do. That's something that they kind of discourage. You know, the every culture is different. And so the Asian culture is very much or the Chinese thoughts toward it is it happened in the past. Don't dwell on the past. Forget about it. And for them, like, because trafficking was a huge issue, they don't want to release that information. They don't want to outright state that, yes, we bought you for 300 USD dollars and then you were adopted for $20,000 and we got, you know, like, they're not going to share that information. Years ago, though, or a couple of years ago, they did release that they wanted to kind of help Chinese adoptees. But it kind of felt like they realized that their population was severely lacking Chinese females. And so they're kind of like trying to call us back home of like, okay, well, now we'll help you because this is going to benefit us if you start coming back here and trying to find your families and stuff like that. So I do have my DNA in a database in China that hopefully one day my biological parents submit their DNA or their, you know, any siblings I have do the same. That's definitely different, I will say. It's interesting to hear China's side compared to how Russia handled cases and the countries that share a border, by the way, have close relations, I mean, yet operate so differently in some in a lot, in a lot of aspects. Yeah. When you were adopted, were you a Chinese citizen? 
Or did you have to give that up when you were adopted? So I was a Chinese citizen and my parents decided to give it up so that it would be easier for me to integrate into my American life. They changed my name so that my middle name or my first name was my middle name, which I know some adoptees that is, you know, it's an interesting topic for a lot of adoptees. And for me personally, my Chinese name was something that was assigned by the orphanage. And so there's not that emotional connection of, well, you know, my birth parents, it, it wasn't, it was assigned to me. It's a generic name. I'm so grateful that my parents kept it as my middle name, but the English pronunciation of it sounds horrible. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure I would have had a horrible time growing up with that name as my first name. But yeah, they had to give up my citizenship and I, became, you know, they applied for my American citizenship. But when I was applying for my tourist visa to go back to China, it was incredibly difficult because the Chinese government was very concerned as to why I gave up my citizenship and what I was doing in the U.S. and why I didn't want to be a Chinese citizen anymore. And then when I crossed into the border into China, they always asked me to write my orphanage name in Mandarin, in the Mandarin characters and not my American legal name. And so that's always been weird. And now I tell any adoptee, a Chinese adoptee who wants to travel to China that you need to prepare a lot of documents before you're able to get your tourist visa. I got denied, I think, seven times before I finally got it. Oh, my. You're making it sound like, gee, dealing with the Russian government, a breeze. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's crazy because, you know, Russia, I don't, it sounds like Russia and China have the same citizenship law in terms of you're born on their soil, therefore they only recognize you as that, which has been the case for Russia. And traveling back to Russia, I had to renew my Russian passport. And I'm also an American citizen. But I think the government is starting, well, they started to change their rules a little bit. But to the best of my knowledge, it's still, you were born here, you're expected to go to the Russian consulate that's nearest you, update your paperwork and travel into the country with, as a Russian. It's hard when you don't know the language and, you know, being adopted has, I don't know from China, but from Russia, it's a stigma on you that the Russian government automatically assumes you are slow or you are not competent. And it makes you feel bad about yourself when you're sitting in front of them honestly unable to like you know produce the paperwork because you can't speak the language and they're laughing at you it's it's, it's terrible but yeah that's a whole new layer and it is it is they always ask me like why did you give it up and i'm like well right because of your policy that you enacted and your gender bias china doesn't allow dual citizenship i assume you can't you can't renew your chinese passport if you wanted to Unfortunately, no. So I do still have it. It is a very ugly photo of me as a crying infant. <laughs> the orphanage took of me. So that is my passport. But when I do travel to China, I have to have all those documents. But you're right about how, you know, in the culture, they, they think like, oh, well, if you were given up, it's because something's wrong with you. Exactly. You're mentally, you know, something, something has to be wrong with you. We don't give up healthy babies. Yeah. And my friend who helped me with my birth parent search, you know, from the same city, she grew up walking past my orphanage every single day on her way to school. She had no idea that there were, quote unquote, healthy babies because China, you know, any any baby that doesn't have any disability or handicap is labeled as healthy and anything else is labeled as unhealthy. And so they only thought that unhealthy babies went to those orphanages. And she didn't realize that when I was there, there was over 200 babies in two very small rooms sharing cribs and sharing only a few nurses to 
take care of all of us. And she was shocked. And anyone I met in China, when I go, they're like, you're adopted, but you're okay. I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of us. (laughs) We're all okay. There's nothing wrong with any of us. Like, and again, like I don't label human beings as healthy or unhealthy. That is strictly a term used for Chinese things. Right. And I can relate in terms of the Russian government, how they got its children adopted foreign by foreign families is the child had to be labeled with some medical diagnosis that turned out not to be true. For example, everyone from my orphanage had club feet, but we didn't have club feet. I had apparently hydrocephalic syndrome, which is water in the brain, which I don't have water in the brain. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so they put all these diagnoses on just because that was the only way the doctors could get the children out of the country. So in some ways it's messed up, obviously. (laughs) But in other ways, it's like they maybe secretly were trying to help you get a better life. And the only way to do that was to lie a lot about who you were. You know, some some of the adoptees have false paperwork. Some have literally the wrong birthday. I mean, there's a lot of layers of complications that for the general public to sit there and tell us how to feel, it's like, you know, step in my shoes for a little bit and let's see how you would handle them. You know, we have to approach it nicely and respectfully. We got to honor their opinion, but we have an opinion too. And that's why we're, we're doing this and everything. So you're right now thinking about maybe another trip again, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. I've been talking about it with my parents. And as I mentioned earlier, there was a documentary that came out called One Child Nation on Amazon Prime. Great documentary. She did an amazing job, really loved it. But they mentioned that there was a huge trafficking scandal between Hunan and Guangdong. And it just so happens that I was adopted from Hunan and my DNA dates me back to Guangdong, not Hunan. So I'm like, great, (laughs) another layer. Might have been me. So with that new knowledge, I kind of feel that maybe we did the birth parent search in the wrong place. As I mentioned, like my story went very viral. I had a lot of the city helping me and wanting to help me. There was like no indication that I might have been from that province. Of course, I was from that orphanage and that that part is true. But if you take into account too, I might have been trafficked into that province, then that, you know, makes more sense. So my parents and I have been discussing what it would look like to go back. And we're kind of starting the process of figuring out which of our Chinese friends could help us with that birth parent search. You know, it's difficult. When you don't live in the place where you're looking for, it's going to be much more difficult to do a birth parent search than like if you're born in the U.S., adopted in the U.S., it's it's going to be a teensy bit easier. Yeah. And of course, you know, foreign governments are, all of our documents are not great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of factors in play, you know, the year you were adopted, when you were born, which government was in power, which government wasn't, you know, um, how good their record keeping was in who cared, who didn't. I mean, it was a funny story that was told to me in my city of Smolensk, where I was adopted. The final stage was it had to be approved by the, I think it was like the governor of the province or had to oversee or a special committee or something my mother was telling me about. And half the time, this guy was on vacation. (laughs) Yeah. So when people got to the final stage adopting, it was paused and they couldn't do anything until this guy got back. But the loophole was, you know, they ended up probably paying someone to just sign the piece of paper and off you go. I mean, it's just, it's crazy to think about, but 
you know, you mentioned how you are very different in a lot of ways from your average Chinese uh, woman over there, right? You said you go back, you're a little darker, you're more Americanized, and you grew up in the West or the East or, I mean, or Orlando, I mean, that Florida's beautiful. I've been there many times. I feel like I live there half the time, but it's gorgeous. Definitely different from China. Do you ever keep up with, like, Chinese holidays or traditions or... Are you involved in the Chinese community at all, or do you tend to stay away? Like, I'm just curious, kind of. Yeah, so for me, I do semi-observe some Chinese holidays. I always try to do Chinese New Year because, one, you get money, and I'm always like, oh, mom and dad, red packet, you know, it's Chinese, it's, it's a cultural thing. And I do have a lot of traditional outfits, but I'm not fully immersed you know, I think there are a lot of other adoptees that feel very comfortable in immersing themselves and they feel more at home. And for me, I felt more out of place. Um, in college, I went to college in Memphis, Tennessee. And so I was involved in an organization called Asian American Association. And I loved it. It was a great experience. And there's nothing wrong with that, except I didn't have that same experience that a lot of other people did. So, you know, they always joke like, oh, yeah. I didn't get a good grade. My mom's going to beat me with a flip-flop. And, oh, yeah, like, the, you know, like, all those things. And I would always just sit there and think, like, yeah, can't relate. That's not me. Like, my mom's, you know, like, that. that's not my... Sorry, I can't relate. I, I never had flip-flops thrown at my face, but... Yeah, I'm like, oh, you know, she might have, like, said some stuff. Nothing like that. And so there's all these, like, little instances that I just never could relate to. And so for me, I don't think I'm there yet. And so I do try to embrace some, but I personally, it's just not, you know, not for me. And a lot of people ask me like, oh, well, are you going to learn Mandarin? And I tried and it wasn't for me. I, I love French. So I learned French instead. And I think that's something that, you know, some people get a little heated at like, oh, can't believe you're a Chinese adoptee. And you say you don't want to learn Mandarin. Like you're a bad adoptee or you're a bad Chinese adoptee. Like, that doesn't mean anything. That's okay. Like, we're allowed to have our own interests. Exactly. Just because I personally don't connect with that, that doesn't make me any less Chinese. You know, I, it's not like I need to fill out like, okay, do I do this? Check. Yes. Do I do this? Yes. Check. Okay, I'm full Chinese. No, I'm Chinese no matter what. It's just some things I observe and other things I don't. Right. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't get the orientation packet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Must have been shipped somewhere else. Sorry. I agree with you on a lot of that. Yep. Absolutely. In May of 2016, we're going back a little bit, you mentioned that you are stuck between an outsider and an insider. What did you mean by that? So I mentioned I was an outsider and an insider because at the time, I think that, yeah, I think we were in China at that time. And on the outside, I looked kind of like a Chinese person. You know, I still, even though I have more Western features and stuff, I still am Chinese. And so I look like I belong. But on the inside, I would sit on the metro. And I think I remember feeling this when I was sitting on the metro there and just hearing all these conversations around me and seeing these groups of Chinese girls, you know, coming off from school and hanging out and going shopping together. And I never felt more isolated. And even though I wasn't speaking and no one was speaking to me, I remember sitting there and thinking, oh my gosh, like I, I really don't belong. Like I feel like I'm an American, like I, I feel like I'm, you know, some blonde hair, blue eyed girl sitting here and I don't belong. But on the outside, I look like I should belong. I look like this should be, feel like home. And so it was that feeling of where do I belong? What do I do? I, I grew up in, with a Caucasian family. Yeah. 
So a lot of my friends are Caucasian. And when I'm in there, I, I again, I, I belong because I have similar values. I do the same things. But on that side, I look different. And I'm like, well, where do I stand? And so it's just constantly feeling that insider outsider. I love how the way you explained that and how you wrote about that. It was impressive. And you resonate a lot with a lot of adoptees and their stories, even from different countries, you know, I think adoptees share a certain level of emotions and experiences, and they're very familiar with similar situations that you've experienced as well. And that's why it's so comfortable to talk to another adoptee, because we can connect on a level that's deeper, in my opinion, than most people can almost instantly. And that's something that's very special. And it shows that, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I had a just actually just popped into my head. I had a really good friend growing up when I was little who was adopted from China. Her name was Jian. Speaking of that, I haven't reached out to her in about 15, 20 years. So I'm going to do that after I'm done talking to you. <laughs> she was great. And, you know, my parents told me to hang out with her a lot because she was adopted from China and young. I was adopted from Russia and young. So they wanted to see, all right, maybe they can understand each other. And for, we got along great. I mean, I don't know, maybe it was just luck or, but, you know, it's nice when you meet someone that you can share a similar background from a different country. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, it is. It is like, you know, I, I do these interviews and I'm always like so anxious beforehand. And then when we start, I'm like, oh, I don't need to be like there. You're right. Like we're able to connect on just a, a different level. And although we might not have the same experiences, I understand and I get it and I see your viewpoint and so it just makes it that much more cool when you are able to connect with adoptees and you just feel more at home almost, even though I've connected with adoptees from America, from China, Korea, Russia, anywhere, but it, you just feel at home. You're like, oh, this is not, I don't need to explain myself. I don't need to explain like. It's amazing. I, I planned a meetup of Russian adoptees about eh, five years ago or so in New York City. And we had about 10 of us, you know, we rented out an Airbnb down by Brighton Beach, you know, with our big Russian community in New York City is. And we went out, we had lunch together at the Russian restaurant and then came home. But, you know, granted, at the end of the day, this was still all 12 people that barely kind of knew each other. And suddenly we were living for a night or whatever together. And it's like we were all brothers and sisters. You know, it was it was the coolest thing ever. My final question to you is your, your story is very unique in its own way, but it's also going to be shared by a lot of other adoptees. And I always like to ask, what piece of advice can you pass on to another adoptee based on your experience? That's a great question. I think the most important piece of advice I have for other adoptees is that your voice is important and that your experience is important. Even though some adoptees don't feel comfortable going online and sharing their experiences out loud, they still matter. And for those who are open and sharing, that's great. And you also matter. And I would just like to encourage the adoptee community as a whole to be more loving and more understanding towards each other because we can be each other's biggest supporters. But I've also seen online a lot of negativity of adoptees to other adoptees. And we have enough people doing that to ourselves that we don't need that inside of our own community. And so I would just encourage more positivity, I guess. I just see a lot of negativity sometimes and I get it. Trust me, I <laughs> I get it. I've been doing this for a while. I get it. And I'm sure you understand as well, but as a whole. Yeah, it, 
it's hard to watch, I will say that. And at the end of the day, it, we need to stop trying to tear each other down as we're already trying to make society understand us. There's no need to try to boil it down to one-on-one and compare ourselves because at the end of the day, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, we're just human beings all trying to live on the same planet together, figuring it out our own way, you know, despite what our background and story and where it began. Taylor, you've been amazing. Thank you so much for your time and your story and your experiences so far. My advice to you, even though you didn't ask, don't ever give up on your advocacy work. I love what you're doing. I stand by it. I'm happy to help in any way possible. You can come back, share your story with us anytime. You're more than welcome. If you're ever up in the East Coast, sorry, Boston, New England area, let me know. We can celebrate together just being adopted because it's special and it's great. So thank you so much for your time, really. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed getting to know your story more and I enjoyed the opportunity to share mine. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That was Taylor from China, everyone. Thank you so much for stopping by another episode of Voice of Adoptee. We air our episodes every Wednesday. If you'd like to join the show, come on www.voiceofadoptees.com. You can find us on iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for so much for stopping by, and we will see you on our next episode. Voice of Adoptee. Who am I? Thanks for listening to Voice of Adoptees. Please take a moment to like, subscribe, and leave a review. See you next time.